this. I stopped at a place in Hammond, Louisiana called Punjabi Dava. You know, you get your gas out front, you go in and part of they they've ripped out all of the convenience store offerings and installed instead the Indian buffet. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. One of the many charms of the South is the moment when you walk into a random gas station and walk out with a box of the best fried chicken you've ever had in your life. Our gas station food is a point of pride, a method of filling up not just your tank, but your belly and your soul. Photographer Kate Medley spent portions of the past 10 years roaming the South in search of great food at gas stations and general stores. Her photos are compiled in a new book called Thank You, Please Come Again, published by the website The Bitter Southerner. Kate found a lot more than fried chicken out on the road. In fact, what she found was a Southern melting pot. Immigrants from all over the world who carry on their traditions in the back of a Texaco somewhere. The pictures she took will help you understand not just what America and the South look like now, but what it tastes like. This book will make your mouth water. You might want to grab a snack before we dive in. Here's our conversation. In the preface to this book, you talk about visiting a gas station over in Hillsborough, North Carolina. Was that sort of the genesis of this book? It was, Tommy. Um, so when you're driving north out of Hillsborough, um, you'll come upon these hand-painted signs on the side of the road that are advertising things like fresh vegetables, organic meat, jams, jellies, hoop cheese. And as you pull into the gravel lot of the farm and garden, you, you, know, you walk in, you pull open the door, and you hear that bell jingle. And inside you see not only all of those things as advertised on the side of the road, but you also see starter plants for your farm, some hot foods for sale. Um, and you see a cross section of people from Orange County, North Carolina that span all ages, all backgrounds, socioeconomic status. And so it was this, it was this confluence of people and culture and retail that that really got me excited about sort of exploring the communities that we live in by way of these spaces. So once you decided to do that, how did you go about kind of making lists or did you make a list or did you just kind of drive around? I just got in the car. Um, it, in truth, it was a combination of I got in the car and I was on my way to somewhere else. And, you know, a lot of these places I found myself sort of um, abruptly breaking, turning around, being late to wherever I was going because I, I just felt compelled to see what was inside. You know, these places to me hold a lot of mystery. Um, and, and so I wanted to see who was behind the counter and, and what they were selling and who was there. And as my project um, continued over the years, I started getting recommendations from friends and colleagues. And so now I, I have this vast and disorganized spreadsheet of hundreds of places around the South. And so as, I, as I've traveled in recent years, it's really become a mix of places that I've happened upon on the way to somewhere else, mixed with you know places that my third cousin told me you can't miss when you're driving through the panhandle of Florida. 
You mentioned uh, the mystery of these places. Uh, tell me what you mean by that. You know, you you, op you open the door to these places and you don't know what you're going to find inside. Um, you don't know if it is going to be a place that is welcoming to you, that is hospitable, that is dangerous. And in this respect, I think these places are truly a microcosm of the South. You know, the good, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I, I became really intrigued by that. Um, you walk into some of these places and you can't help but feel sort of a long history of the South there. The, the tone of the space and the people as you walk in the door can tell you a lot about where you are. One of the things I thought about in terms of, you know, the logistics of value to this book was that a lot of these places are in small towns and they probably don't see a whole lot of strangers. And I wonder what that was like for you kind of approaching people saying, you know, I want to take pictures of this place for a book, maybe, you know, how did, what were the reactions like when you were trying to sort of sell yourself as somebody to, to be a photographer there? Honestly, the reaction from the proprietors of these places was all over the map. Um, there was a guy down in Cameron, North Carolina of South Asian descent who was very welcoming to me. And um, as I explained the, the premise of the book, he said, you know, do whatever you need. I'm here for you. Um, you know, do your pictures. And so I did. And he sort of watched me for a while. It's this great convenience store at um, gas station that in the back has pool tables and slot a few slot machines he sort of watched me do my work and then he paused and he said do you really think that this is interesting to people and I said I did you know and, and as I asked him what is this place like on a Friday night it was clear that you know this was the gathering place for that at least that side of Cameron that people lit up those pool tables on a Friday night some people like him maybe were a little confused as to, you know, they couldn't see, they were too in the middle of it to see what was interesting to me as an outsider. You know, in other communities, Tommy, I, I very much was an outsider. I would, I'm originally from Mississippi and did a lot of work in Mississippi for this book. And in some communities in the Mississippi Delta, for instance, that are, you know, all black communities, when I come into that gas station, even as a shopper, as a customer, as an outsider to that community, you know, I was putting them a little on edge. And so I tried, you know, I tried to be sensitive to that. And so there were a lot of places that I went to and either the people were very straightforward with me that they were not interested in being part of it. You know, we didn't even get that far and I sensed their apprehension with me being there. They're in my memory, but they're not in my book. Beyond just the fact of getting in there and getting somebody to agree, to let you be there. What are the challenges of taking pictures in places like that? That's a good question. I think first and foremost, um, the challenge is that most people who are coming through these gas stations, they are on their way somewhere. They're stopping because they need to get gas and they need to get going. Um, and they were, <laughs> they were not stopping to be photographed. They were not stopping to model for me. And I was not- um, Yeah, they're not, they're not dressed up, right? <laughs> They were definitely not dressed up. Um, and I was not asking people to model for me, but, um, you know, it, it was for some sort of a, an abrupt proposition that they'd be photographed while passing through the gas station. A lot of these places, 
by their very nature are sort of liminal spaces in that they are constantly changing to serve the needs of their community. So I started this project about 10 years ago um, when I would return over the years to revisit some of these spaces. You know, they may have changed business concepts entirely or you know, the building may no, may no longer be there. So that, again, that's just sort of the nature of the business. Um, these places, you know, they fight to survive, but in order to survive, they have to be flexible to serve the needs of their patrons. And as that community shifts, as the populations who live there change, the business changes. Yeah, one of the things you notice looking through this book is, and maybe this was just what you were drawn to, is a lot of these places you know, look like they're just kind of hanging on. They're kind of run down a little bit. The buildings aren't in great shape. Always struck in these places by sort of the DIY nature of it. Like like they're like handwritten notes on the door. There's one in your book from somebody who says, basically, if I'm closed, call me. And it left his phone number and said, I'll come down and get you what you need. That sort of thing. It's There was sort of a ramshackleness to it, but that was also sort of intimate in a way, I guess. Is that, am I saying that right? There's incredible resourcefulness. And I was really drawn to that. You know, these, these, a lot of these places, especially in the rural South, they are the true lifelines of the community. To your point, to your example, when they're not open, you know, that's not only the gas station's not open, but in that place in Moon Lake, Mississippi, the lending library is not open. The hot grill's not open. The hardware store is not open. And so you do need his cell phone, his cell phone number um, when you have an emergency in some of those situations. And so, yeah, I mean, these these places are, are serving so many different needs for so many different people that you really see a lot of um, ingenuity in, in the way that they handle that. I had not really thought much about either the history of kind of gas station food or, you know, the, the way it's developed now. And so there are a couple of things in this book that really fascinated me. One is the idea that kind of during the civil rights era, for many black travelers, the gas station was the only place that you could find a meal where they were allowed in. And in fact, it sounds like maybe that's how some of these places developed food in the first place, right? Back in the 60s, as you know, if you were an African-American traveler trying to move across the South, um, you were very limited in where you could stop, not only for gas, um, but for a restroom and certainly for hot food. Um, and so a lot, you know, there today there are very few Black-owned gas stations, not only in the South, but in the country. But a few of these that are featured in the book, I think, really became... Um, and still are those safe spaces within that community and even much wider than that community within that state. Um, one of the places featured in the book is um, in South Alabama, a guy named Fred Eaton has a service station that has been around since the 60s. He's now in his, I think he's now 90. And he owns it with his, um, I think, 10 brothers. And it is a full service gas station. It's cash only. From what I could find, it's one of, if not the only Black-owned gas station in Alabama at this point. Kind of going in a different direction with the conversation, a lot of the gas stations in the U.S. are immigrant-owned. Um, I think more than 60% of the gas stations in the U.S. are immigrant-owned. 
And so one of the focuses of the book was really to try to chart the shifting immigrant foodways of the South by way of some of these restaurants that were popping up in the backs of gas stations. For me growing up in Mississippi, one of the first experiences I ever had with Indian food was at the local BP station, which was owned by a couple of Indian descent. And the proprietor's wife would cook the Indian food at home based on her family's recipes. And then she would package it up in Tupperware and bring it to the gas station to sell to her customers. I think that that example and and many that you see in the book are part of a long tradition of immigrant populations entering the workforce in the U.S. by way of food businesses. I mean, I'm thinking of the halal food trucks in New York, taco stands on the West Coast. I feel like there's a there's a history of hot dog stands in Charlotte. Is that is that accurate? Definitely lots of hot dog stands. And in Charlotte in particular, uh, Greek immigrants started a lot of diners. In fact, uh, a lot of the existing diners here still, you know, they have all the normal diner stuff, but they still have baklava and, you know, spanakopita or whatever. So that, yeah, that history is there too. Yeah. So, I mean, exactly. I feel like gas stations fit squarely within within that immigrant food economy. Um especially in more urban areas like Charlotte, like New Orleans, like Atlanta. Um, So I tried to really make that a focus of the research for this book as well. There are all these like intersecting worlds that I know or knew very little about. Like you mentioned uh, somewhere in there that a lot of the Indian food uh, places at gas stations are there because there are so many truck drivers who are who originated in India, which is something I had no idea about. Um, nor did I until until working on this. I stopped at a place in Hammond, Louisiana called Punjabi Daba. And the guys who started Punjabi Daba, they are from the northern Indian region of Punjab. And they noted this trend of truck drivers in the US, long haul truck drivers who are from that region in India. And and as they're, you know, crisscrossing the country, they don't have many options for where to eat that serves the food of their home. Um, And so these guys, they opened Punjabi Daba in the back of a gas station. It's called Icebox. The gas station is called the Icebox. Um, And it's at the intersection of interstates 55 and 12. So these, you know, crucial arteries within our country. And, you know, you get your gas out front. You go in and part of they they've ripped out all of the convenience store offerings and installed instead the Indian buffet. The, these guys, they found so much success in their restaurant um, that they are moving it out of the gas station into a standalone and putting the convenience store offerings back into the gas station. Uh, because the provider told me that he said, um, Rich people won't eat in a gas station. <laughs> Did you find uh, much sort of cross-cultural stuff going on there in those type of places where, you know, people who might not have ever gone in to an Indian restaurant would might try something because it's there in the gas station and find that, hey, I like Indian food after all. I think you certainly see some of that. And then you also see on the side of the proprietor or the cook or the chef, an inclination to meet people where they are, to craft a menu that not only serves, you know, 
their Middle Eastern food of their youth, but also serves a burger or chicken wings or something that is very American, very familiar. Again, coming back to sort of the the necessity of these places, you might be serving the Vietnamese food that you grew up with, but you know you really need to be serving food that you want. You want to be able to serve lunch to everybody who walks through the door, and so alongside that bowl of pho or that banh mi, you know, you're also serving fried chicken and potato logs. When we come back, Kate Medley talks about never saying no to a good gas station meal. I think I ate just about everything that's in the book. It was really important to me to try everything. You know, when someone cooks food for me, it's such an act of generosity that regardless of how many meals I've eaten that day, uh, I definitely <laughs> I definitely want to try it. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Kate Medley. There were many, many things in this book that I immediately wanted to drive to these places and go eat. This is not a book to read when you're hungry. <laughs> um, but there was one in particular, there was a Bon Me that I think a place in Louisiana made with like Creole shrimp. It was basically like a, a Bon Me crossed with a po' boy. And that just like, I would have, you know, I'd drive a thousand miles for that. And it made me wonder if you saw like um, beyond sort of the cultural things that we've talked about, like what are sort of the regional differences? You went to Louisiana and Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, North and the Carolinas and Florida. What were some things that you saw maybe pop up regionally over and over again? Well, for starters, you should drive 1,000 miles and maybe a little bit more to go to Bond Me Boys right outside of New Orleans, where Peter Wynn is um, making incredible Bond Me's in the back of a Texaco that are a mashup of his of his family's Vietnamese traditions and his um, New Orleans upbringing. It is next level. To answer your question, though, I think um, in a lot of the more urban areas that I visited, there, there was a lot, a lot more immigrant influence, um, immigrant foodways influence. And in the rural areas, kind of across the board, you see a menu that is successful enough to keep the place alive. You know, these places in the rural South, they cannot afford not to sell fried chicken. In the Florida panhandle, um, I couldn't help but observe that they were they were very forward about their politics. You know, your your cup of coffee 
um, was shadowed by a let's go Brandon flag, for instance. And I, and I didn't really observe that anywhere else. So it, it stuck out to me. In Mississippi and Louisiana, a lot of gas stations went hard on a plate lunch, um, a meet and three approach. Whereas in North Carolina, I saw more sort of fried chicken and sandwiches. There's a great fried chicken spot that I'm sure you know about, Tommy, um, in Charlotte. That was news to me called the Quick Shop. Yes, I think there are two of them. Yeah, and they both have incredible fried chicken. That was one one of the recommendations that came from from many North Carolinians that this book would not be complete without featuring Marta Miranda's fried chicken at the Quick Shop on the corner of I think South Boulevard and East Boulevard. That's exactly right. You got it. I wanted to ask also. I don't remember if you mentioned this by name in the book, but I saw in a couple of pictures sort of the, what I've always thought is the Mississippi delicacy of chicken on a stick. You've, I'm sure, been to this place in Oxford, Mississippi, that the Four Corners Chevron, that is well, well known for their chicken on a stick. The guy who runs the place, he challenged me to come back at 2 a.m. on a Friday night when the bar is let out. And he, he swore that he has hundreds of people who line up at that hour. That is by far his busiest hour of the week. So as you described, they ain't making many salads in these places. And you've been driving, you drove around for years and years going to these places. Do you have, did you have to sort of like watch yourself day by day <laughs> in terms of like your intake? Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, did you actually eat this food? And I did. I think I ate just about everything that's in the book. It was really important to me to try everything. You know, when someone cooks food for me, it's such an act of generosity that regardless of how many meals I've eaten that day, uh, I definitely <laughs> I definitely want to try it. I definitely overindulge, but I'll, I'm living to tell the tale so far. If you could put together like a dream plate of the stuff that you encountered on the way, what would be on it? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Um, I already mentioned the Von Mies in New Orleans. I would also bring in Abash Al-Shari, he's uh, an Iraqi refugee in New Orleans serving Middle Eastern food. There is a woman in Greensboro, North Carolina. Her name is Batur Sissy. She is selling Senegalese food out of the back of a Circle K. I would definitely have some of her jollof rice on that plate. The plate would be incomplete without a little bit of fried chicken, I gotta say. But it, you know, it would be one of these plates that like has many layers. There were, they were, it would be piled high. There, there's all these sort of, um, you know, old sayings about when you go into a small town diner, if you see like cop cars there, you know it's good. Or if there's a, an old timey calendar hanging on the wall or whatever. Were you able to figure out any clues like when you pulled up to a place where you thought, oh, this, this has a chance to be pretty good? I think I, think I did, um, but I've never tried to articulate it. I definitely honed in on not necessarily places that were independently owned because most of these places are affiliated with a major oil company. Um, so, you know, you see the big BP sign or the Texaco sign, and then you sort of have to look past that to the next layer of ownership. So I was often looking for some human touch, whether, you know, we first started this conversation talking about hand-painted signs on the side of the road. 
you know, a lot of these places I would go into, I don't have a, I don't have a like perfect batting average. I would go into a lot of these places and I would glance around, buy a bottle of water and hit the road. Um, it just, it wasn't quite the ticket, but you know, some of these places you go in and you immediately see a basket beside the cash register that has slices of homemade pound cake. Again, looking for some sort of human touch that tells me, you know, this place wasn't designed by a marketing team at world headquarters. This place was designed by an individual who lives in Cameron, North Carolina. Whether again, that is, you know, a handwritten menu, imperfect touches, I think I was often looking for. I have to ask about one picture in particular in the book. There's a photo of a guy at a place down in Florida and he's standing in front of a freezer and he's holding a gigantic gator head. And then there's like three more gator heads on top of the freezer. What the hell was going on there? I fought to get that book, that picture into the book, Tommy. Um, that is at JR's Oscilla River store in the panhandle of, North, of Florida. They are right on, I guess it's the Oscilla River. And so he not only goes alligator hunting each year, but I think he leads people on alligator hunts along that river. And he runs this gas station, which has a restaurant attached to it where they sell various gator offerings. And he was insistent that I come back in the right season so that I could try them. And then he walked me to this sort of back shed that was a shed only to house freezers. As he opened them, I saw that the freezers were there only to house alligators. And he had, you know, maybe a dozen gators in the back of this gas station that he had brought in that season. So, Kate, I want to go all the way back into how all this started. You mentioned, I think somewhere in the book, uh, maybe in the acknowledgments, you thanked your dad for always pulling over when you wanted to take a picture. So it sounds like taking pictures was something you've done since you were very little. Is that right? It's something I became interested in high school. I took a color photography class at the local college, Millsaps College. Um, the teacher told us that we could photograph anything we wanted as long as it wasn't cemeteries or cats. <laughs> I didn't have a car at the time, and so my dad would drive me around the outskirts of our town, I think much in the vein of what I imagined to be Mississippi's Eudora Wealthy. We would, you know, sort of amble along these country roads and he told me, you know, tell me when to stop. It didn't really stick out to me at the time, I don't think, but it really has inspired certainly the way I approach this book. Um, but even more so, I think the way that I approach traveling around the South. I work in photography and journalism because it gives me reason and excuse to make some of these stops and to meet some of these people, to go into some of these places, to ask these people to share parts of their lives with me. I, I find it the greatest honor to, to have it as my job to document the stories of, of these people, these communities, these cultures, these lifestyles that are, that are not my own, and to have people welcome, welcome me in to do that. You have, as a freelancer, you have other assignments that are extremely different from this one. You know, you will often, I, I, I know, have an assignment where you're sent to maybe 
I don't know, let's say go shoot a portrait of somebody. And I, I've seen from the other end how those work. Sometimes you just get 20 minutes with somebody and you got to figure it out. How do you approach going into those moments when you're sort of parachuting in and you have to make a relationship with somebody really quickly? How, how have you learned to make those sorts of things work? So yeah, my day job is is working as an independent photojournalist based out of Durham, but mostly covering national news for you know, the New York Times, NPR, Wall Street Journal. So yeah, a lot of that is covering the news of this place. And a lot of that is making the portraits of the people who are part of that news. You know, a lot of times when I go to make a portrait for the news, I'm going into someone's home And a big part of my job is to build trust with that person very quickly. Increasingly, I think a part of my job is to explain to these people that this image could be seen all over the world. You should be very careful with, you know, what you share, what you visually share with us. Um, You should think through, you know, you're, you're in a very vulnerable position and I feel like it's part of my job to help you understand that right out of the gates. So to talk through, here we are in your bedroom making this photograph for the New York Times. What in here is is private to you that I should work around to make sure it's not exposed? It's a very different process when I'm photographing the governor of North Carolina, who is an elected official. He's in a much less vulnerable position on the good day. But yeah, I mean, mostly I'm mostly I'm photographing regular people who are being very gracious to welcome me into their home. And so that conversation and that power dynamic has become, I think, central to the work that I do. One way to frame the history of Southern food is the tradition of taking something humble and turning it into something glorious. Barbecue is all about taking tough cuts of meat and transforming them over a low, slow fire. Pot liquor nourished slaves when their overseers took the greens for themselves. The have-nots in our culture have always figured out how to make food that's better than anything at a fancy table. And so the humble gas station has now become, in many small towns and some big ones, the place where blue-collar folks can eat better than kings and queens. And along the way, those places have become beacons for people from other cultures who have moved here but still want a taste of home. Kate Medley has done us the favor of documenting not just delicious food, but a whole way of life. The thing is, it's a life you have to seek out. You have to actually go in the store instead of just filling up at the pump and moving on. You might have to take the back roads instead of the highways. It takes time and effort, but the reward is a key to Heaven's Buffet. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.